This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as the announcer just said, this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Anything and everything is fair game. Just call us at 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you live outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I hope you have a good week, and as we get ready to go into a weekend, have a great weekend at church. we got a lot of stuff planned, believe it or not. We're uh, having a baptism uh, tomorrow. It's a small one. We our, our big event was canceled at the river, so we're going out to a private home, and some of the people getting baptized. I want to share a quick story with you. We got a young man named Nathan. I've told you Nathan's stories before in the past. This is a kid, six years old. Believe me, he gets it. He knows exactly what he's doing. He really studies his Bible. He likes it when I test him and give him questions. He knows more than most adults. I'll tell you that at the beginning. Well, just this weekend, I get to baptize him tomorrow. Um, But... It was, Paula was talking to uh, Nathan's mom, and she let him know that this week Nathan didn't want breakfast. Mom fixed him breakfast before school, as of course she would. And uh, Nathan said, Mom, I don't want any breakfast this morning. I'm fasting. She said, you're fasting? Why are you fasting? You need your energy. And he said, no, I'm fasting because Jesus fasted. Now, that's just one kid who's grown up at this church and his parents are doing such a great job. Nathan, I am so very proud of you and I can't wait for the honor of baptizing you tomorrow. Thank you for that. Hey, I also want to mention one other thing. Um, one of my, and I don't mean heroes in the sense of, of um, he's not an idol or anything, but one of the men that I look up so dearly to uh, uh, I just got an announcement that he, uh, yesterday, actually, I meant to mention it and forgot. Uh, but Charles Stanley stepped down as the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, after 50 years of faithful ministry. 
50 years. Now, when I first got saved, I started watching Charles Stanley. Uh, Paula liked him. He he was always big on lists. Paula likes lists. And so we would watch him all the time. And I was so enriched by his ministry. Well, we've been watching him, not continually ever since, but uh, we've been watching him. And, and uh, I, you know, as I get older, I'm really inspired by these guys who've been doing it for a long, long time. And they're getting older. Charles Stanley is 88 years of age. Um, he's an effective Bible teacher. He's still going to continue with In Touch Ministries. But um, he's just a guy who answered the call of God. He wanted everybody to know he's not retiring because he doesn't believe in retirement. He's going to continue with the In Touch Ministries portion of it. And he's going to serve God. He's going to serve God as best he can. But 50 years of faithful service. And um, I so admire admire him. He knew when the right time to step down was. It was certainly a decision that was hard to arrive at. It was a a decision that was led by the Lord. Um, But he wants to keep serving until it's time for him to go be with Jesus. And I have no doubt that he will. Um, Might be a good time, especially for some of you who are younger in the audience. Um, Google In Touch Ministries or look at YouTube or wherever else you can find it. And, and listen to him. I know he's on television um, quite often. I don't know the exact schedule, but uh, you will be blessed. Simple, straightforward Bible teaching from a man with a heart for Jesus and a man whose heart has been proven over a period of 50 years. I, I keep saying that because it just staggers my imagination. I've been doing this for 25 years. I told Paula when we heard about this, I said, no, I don't think I'm going to have another 25 years. And um, I'm probably not, but um, I want to be just as faithful in my last years as Charles Stanley was in his. So um, that could be your blessing for the weekend. Listen to Charles Stanley. You will be blessed. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. And then we will... Waiting for your phone calls. This one is from Robert from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I was listening to you on the radio this week, and you had mentioned that the Church of Christ practiced infant baptism. I've attended multiple churches of Christ my whole life and have never witnessed that, nor has that been preached because it is not biblical. In every church of Christ, the message of salvation is by grace alone. Uh, if a child wants to be baptized, he must be an age uh, of an age to fully understand what being a Christian means. Could you be referring to the United Churches of Christ or the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints? These are not affiliated with the Church of Christ. Can you explain further? Oak Hills Church, where Max Lucado ministers used to be, um, Oak Hills Church of Christ, and has never preached or practiced in baptism. Very respectfully, Robert. Robert, very respectfully, let me ask for your forgiveness. Uh, I remember the call about infant baptism, and I was um, I, I, I included the Church of Christ at the end, and that was absolutely wrong. You are right. They don't practice infant baptism. Um, my, my frame of reference was because they do believe in baptismal salvation. And um, uh, I was aware that uh, uh, Max Lucado's church used to be the Oak Hills Church of Christ. Um, but you are absolutely right. They do not 
practice uh, nor teach infant baptism at all. Um, my confusion, and I just simply misspoke, and again, beg your forgiveness. Um, I, I just, it was the connection in my mind to a baptismal salvation. Um, the churches that do practice infant baptism believe that that deals with the problem of original sin. And, uh, of course, they are wrong, but, but nonetheless. Um, the one thing that you did say uh, in, your, in your email, and I want to be sure I said it right, um, in every church of Christ, the message of salvation is by grace alone. That I would take issue with, Robert, because um, they believe that without baptism, which is a work, a response to being saved by grace through faith, um, they teach that, that one must be baptized in order to, to consummate the salvation. And I don't think that is a, a message of salvation by grace alone. Uh, so other than that, I've got no issue. Um, the idea of, of baptismal generation or regeneration simply is contradictory to the Bible. So, Robert, thank you for pointing out my error. I always want people to point out my errors on this program. And Robert, not only did you respectfully, but you were right in your assessment. So thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Robert. He says, um, is there such a thing as a non-Trinitarian Christian? Um, Robert, I guess there could be only though at the beginning. For instance, if somebody gets saved, Jesus um, um, the Holy Spirit convicts them and, and somebody says, I believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people who don't understand the Trinity. Um, and, and so to, to say you must understand the Trinity, you must accept the Trinity uh, to be saved is going beyond what the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace through faith and faith is a gift from God. However, having said that, to be a believer a genuine convert to Christ, you must have the right Jesus, and the right Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. So you have to believe in the God of the Bible, and that God is one God present in three persons. So a Trinity denier is certainly not a born-again believer. Somebody who says, well, I just don't make any, doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, one, one Father, one Son, one, one Holy Spirit sounds like three gods. Um, if they reject that, or even the oneness, the oneness Pentecostals, um, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Um, that's that's a, 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 a belief that falls outside of the boundaries of the essentials of the Christian faith. So if somebody is a professing Christian and they reject, actively reject, the concept of Trinity, they have a God that doesn't, uh, that can't save. They have a God that is, is not the God of the Bible as given to us, uh, Robert. And this is not the same Robert, I don't think, as the one that we just had. So um, for this Robert, you must believe in the God of the Bible. He is one God present in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. hope that helps. Thank you, Robert, very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Um, it says, some churches believe you cannot take communion if you are living in sin. Is that true or not? Anonymous, um, we don't want anybody taking communion if you're living in sin. That's a denial of the body and blood that you're partaking, regardless of what you're uh, interpretation of, of communion is, whether it becomes the body uh, and, and, and the blood of Christ or 
or not. Um, um, if you're living in sin, Paul says in writing to the Corinthians that some of you are sick because you've been taking communion in an unworthy manner. And the reference there is to the sin, the open sin that was going on, taking place in the church in Corinth. Uh, I tell my church, uh, Anonymous, every time that we take communion, um, if your heart's not right with God, you need to get right with God right there. Repentance is required. If you're not willing to do that, then it's better for you if you don't partake. Um, I also tell our church that uh, communion is a family celebration. By that I mean if you're an unbeliever, and I tell this is the, the announcement I make, if you're an unbeliever, you have no intention today of accepting the invitation to become a believer, then we also would ask that you pass on the communion elements because you have no part in that sort of, of not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but, but it's certainly um, treating God in, in a, a sinful way. So um, if you're in sin, then don't take communion. If you want to take communion, repent of your sin. That means to stop sinning. And then, anonymous, that you come having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I think these are really important questions. And I'm not sure what the genesis of your question is here. But but I don't know why anyone who would be in a church who would want to partake of communion if, in fact, you're living in willful sin. That's sort of trampling on the grace of God, that's, that's sort of thumbing your nose at the Jesus who saves you and the Jesus you claim is your Lord and Savior. So uh, I would agree. Um, you cannot take communion. You should not take communion if you are living in willful sin. So hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's a question from Jerry. He says, "Are health issues and disease issues caused by the devil?" And Jerry, I don't know if you're asking because of the virus. I've had a couple of questions this week about about the virus uh, that we're all dealing with. Uh, the answer to your question is no. The devil doesn't cause health issues. The devil doesn't cause diseases. Remember, we have only two instances in all of our Bible of the devil being able to afflict people. One was with, of course, Job. And the devil had to go through the council of heaven to to get God's blessing to do that. The other one, of course, is the Apostle Paul. He was afflicted with whatever his thorn in the flesh was. We know it was a physical illness. But that was a messenger of Satan who was sent uh, to afflict the Apostle Paul. The only two uh, possibilities in the Scripture. Beyond that, Satan can't touch God's people. Now, he can lie and he can threaten and he can uh, impact your dreams and nightmares and he can plant ugly thoughts in your mind. He'll do all those things. But, Jerry, it, it's always difficult for me when I hear people say, well, you know, the devil gave me cancer. I hate the devil or the devil gave me this flu or none of those things are true. Now, it is true that God uses those things to try to get us to draw closer to him 
once we are afflicted. But it's also true that the devil will use them to try to draw you farther away from God once you're afflicted. If the devil can get you, find you where you're weak and and uh, just as he did Job, um, he, can, he can he can do anything and everything that he can to try to destroy your trust in God. He will do that. But your question, Jerry, was are these issues caused by the devil? The answer is no. Good question. Here is a question from Teresa. Teresa says, why does God let us struggle so much instead of solving our problems? Teresa, um, faith needs to be exercised. I say that all the time. And if our life was pretty steady, if, if you're honest with yourself, when things are going really well, you don't really depend on God, do you? I mean, we're grateful that things are going well, but you know, you kind of get on your own, make your own decisions, do what you want to do. And sometimes God lets us struggle because we need to be drawn to Him. When I am sick physically, Teresa, or when really difficult things are going on in my life, um, I, I, I want to move in closer to the Lord. I want to get so close to Him that I can't miss Him. I want to hear His voice. I need to be strengthened and encouraged. And sometimes it takes struggles for us to do that. It's, it's sad that that's true, but that's the human condition. And God has never promised to struggle to solve our problems. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, people will hate you on my account. They will insult you because of me. And that's just the world that we live in. We live in this fallen world. So it's not like God brings the struggle, the struggles. Now, sometimes he does. There are struggles and trials of correction, of redirection, you know, we're going the wrong way, doing the wrong thing, and, and God will put us in trial so he can redirect our steps. But for the most part, Teresa, the, the idea of a God who solves all of our problems, well, you don't find that God in your Bible at all. It makes sense to us. God, if you love me, you wouldn't let me go through this. But isn't that what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with? Jesus was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. Hadn't had any water in 40 days. And the devil waits until Jesus is in his physically weakest state. And he peers to him and said, you know, look at all these stones. They look like bread. You know, if God really loved you, then you could turn these stones to bread. And Jesus, of course, responded with the word of God. But Teresa, the, the, the concept of God who just solves all of our problems and lets us live a life without any difficulty at all, uh, there's no basis for finding that God in our Bibles at all. So maybe you're struggling right now, Teresa, so that you'll say, Jesus, what are you trying to tell me? What do I need to know? What do I need to learn from this? This is a good time for you to examine your heart. Paul says we're to do it daily anyway, but this might be the time for you to say, Jesus, why is my heart accusing you of letting me struggle? Why can't I trust that you're good? And what you've already done for me is enough. You, you died for my sins. Isn't it enough, Teresa? So God 
brings us into places of difficulty so that we'll depend on him. You know what I find interesting about the uh, temptation of the wilderness that I just referenced, Jesus' temptation? It was the very first thing that Jesus encountered after being baptized by John and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending upon him in the form of a dove. The very first thing was being led into a wilderness to be tempted directly by the devil himself. Now, if God allowed his own son to do that, why wouldn't going into these struggles with Jesus be the best thing for us as well? Not naive here. Nobody likes struggles. Nobody likes these kinds of trials. But it's in these trials where we really experience the daily grace of God to live. It's where we experience his sufficiency. In the Apostle Paul's case, he pleaded with God three times to let that physical thorn in the flesh, let this go, Lord, please take this from me. And three times Jesus said no, and his answer was my, or I mean, uh, um, the, the Father said no. Um, three times. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul then understood the value of the trial. So, Teresa, keep struggling, but let Jesus do the struggling. You just stay close to him. 340-9585. Here is a question from Roger. He says, can Satan influence our thought life? Most decidedly, he can influence our thought life. That's why Paul tells us that we're to take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. You know, a good example, Roger, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we know that's true, but so often we feel condemned. We feel so guilty. Well, that's Satan who's making you think like that. It's Satan who questions the goodness of God. The question we just said, Teresa, I'm struggling. Why is God letting this? That's a question that comes from the evil throne of the devil. We've got to learn to identify those, but he can certainly influence our thought life. David was moved by Satan, with God's permission now. But David was moved by Satan to number the troops of Israel. I think David's worst sin. But it was Satan who planted the idea. God sent Joab. Why do such a thing? But he didn't listen to God and went and did whatever it was the enemy wanted him to do. And so he influenced David's thought life. I've had a lot of experiences personally, Roger, where Satan's trying to convince me to do something that I knew was in contradiction to what God had already told me to do. I've seen Satan use other people to try to convince me that God wanted me to do something that I knew he didn't want me to do. And when that happens, you've got to take those thoughts and, and just remember what's true. That's when we open our Bibles. That's when we begin to pray. And then we can take those thoughts captive and we simply strip the devil of any power that he has in our lives. So, yeah, he can influence your thought life. Uh, another thing, uh, Roger, Satan can do is influence your dreams when they become nightmares, not always, but often, that's the devil. Uh, I, that's true in my life. 
So, yeah, Satan has the ability. I used to think of him like the big bad wolf. You know, he can huff and he can puff and he can threaten to blow our house down. But when our house is on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, there's nothing he can do except try to scare us. And when we give in to fear, then he's empowered and he's going to keep trying to influence your thought life. One other thought, Roger. Um, how many times when you purpose in your heart to open your Bible or you purpose in your heart to pray and you start talking to the Lord, these horrible, evil thoughts come flooding in your mind. That's the enemy. He doesn't want you in the Bible. He doesn't want you talking to Jesus. So he's going to bring all these thoughts and fears and all kinds of things in your mind, things that you, you, you've been putting off for a long time. Suddenly there's an urging, better do this right now. He doesn't want you in the Word. He doesn't want you in prayer. And that's just Satan, once again, influencing our thought life. So, yeah, it's real. He can do it. And um, we don't have to give in. Good question, Roger. Thank you very, very much. Well, we're inside a minute now, so I'm not going to do another question until the other side of the break. But remember, this is a, a call-in show. If you have any questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Um, we have a Friday night service tonight. I'm going to finish Ephesians chapter 2. Great study. That's at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com. Well, this is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, our final 30 minutes of the week. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, since Jews are God's people, I know they will get to heaven, but Jesus said he was the only way. Is that a contradiction? Uh, Anonymous Jews are God's chosen people, but the only way we become sons or daughters of God is to be adopted in the family. So Jews are God's chosen people, but remember that's Israel as a nation. He chose them individually for people to respond to the call of God, then they've got to do that through Jesus Christ. So there's no contradiction at all. That doesn't mean that all Jews are going to go to heaven. It means that those who are truly Jews will eventually, when they go to die, when they will, they will be in the presence of the Lord, but only having been born again. I think one of the things that we overlook too quickly is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the most Jewish of all the Jews. He was Israel's teacher, definite article, I mean, the man. I mean, he was the preeminent teacher. And Jesus told him twice, Nicodemus, in order to get to heaven, you must be born again. 
So that's the only way anybody gets to heaven. But you're right about Israel being God's chosen people. But that's a national calling, not an individual calling. So I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. Albert says, did animals die before the fall? Um, Albert, I don't think so. We, we don't give any information, but I don't think anything died before the fall. I think had the world remained perfect and, and uh, Adam and Eve not uh, introduced sin in the world, then uh, not only would people live forever, but animals would live forever as well. Um, but, but when sin entered the world, death entered the world as well. And that was when, uh, when animals began to die. By the way, it's also when they began to eat one another. Um, before they'd live off vegetation just like they, like, like humans would. Um, but everything changed when sin entered the world. So, Albert, that's the, uh, that's the answer. Jesse says, what does it mean that the dead in Christ will rise first. Is that about the rapture? Um, Jesse, it is about the rapture. You're referring to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter six, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. But let me read 15 and 16. Paul says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, and that's a euphemism for death, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command in the voice of an, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he is talking about the rapture of the church. Remember that in the uh, background of, of both letters to the churches in Thessalonica, was this rumor that had been circulating. One of the things about the early church, and we have to remember this always, um, um, Jesse, is that, that they really expected Jesus to return at any moment. I mean, you talk about a pre-tribulation rapture doctrine. They expected Jesus to come back. We who are still alive, until the coming of the Lord. So they expected to be raptured. They expected to see the Lord. Now, with the dead rising first, all that is is, is chronology. Um, when the Lord comes down and we, we hear the trumpet call of God, we'll be caught up to be with him in the air. And the dead in Christ will, and maybe the best way to understand it is, will have already risen to be with him. So they precede us. In other words, he says to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And at that moment, when we're in the presence of Jesus, um, those people will meet them when Jesus calls us up to be with him where he meets us in the air. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find out for that seven-year period of time uh, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we're being married to Jesus, we're going to find that the people that we loved on this earth who've died already have been there. And that's all that means. The rumor that was going around Thessalonica is that um, the, the people who died uh, missed out. That's what the false teachers were saying. Well, what about, you know, we expected to see Jesus, but my my father died or my my brother died 
And, and Paul is simply saying, don't listen to that. We already talked about this. When I was with you, the dead in Christ will go to be with Jesus instantly, and they will precede us. And that's what that means. So it is about the rapture, Jesse, and it is a wonderful promise. We are not appointed unto judgment, but we are appointed unto salvation. That's why the rapture is so important. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Bill wants to know, are deliverance ministries credible? Uh, Bill, they are incredible. I don't mean incredible in the good sense. They're incredible in the sense of lacking credibility at all. Um, whenever you find deliverance ministries, you're looking at these over-the-top charismatic churches um, valuing experience rather than, than, than the teaching of the Word of God. Um, and they're, they're, they're the only deliverance any of us need is to be saved. And once we're saved, we no longer need deliverance because we've been delivered. And deliverance ministries, they're based on uh, a false belief that Christians can be demon-possessed. We cannot be demon-possessed. And they'll typically blame, um, you know, um, drinking on, on generational curses or, or demons, and they'll cast demons out. The problem with that is you don't have a demon. That's not the problem. The problem is sin and whether or not your repentance was genuine. But there is no Biblical deliverance ministry because we've been delivered once and for all by the gift of life Jesus gave us by dying for us on the cross. Very, very important. Doctrine matters, Bill. Doctrine matters. So when you've got people saying, well, cast this demon out or cast that demon out, um, run away. Now, the reason this is so important to me I could have answered that with just a one-word answer. Are they credible? No. But a young man that got saved at our church, after a couple of years, he got involved in some bad stuff. We didn't see him. The last time I saw him, he was in my office in tears because he'd been going to another church that was a deliverance ministry. And they told him he had demons, and he says, the demons won't go, they won't go. And I tried so hard to explain to him that you have no demon. You've been sinning, and the, the enemy is pounding you, but you have no demon. And he ended up killing himself, and I had to do his funeral. And I laid that at the feet of the deliverance ministry the people, the Christians who told him that he was demon-possessed. All these years later, it still breaks my heart. So, Bill, run away from him. Here's an anonymous question. Somebody disagrees with me. He says, I disagree with you regarding prophets being for today. I'm a prophet, and I know others who are. Well, here's your problem, Anonymous. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the apostles and the prophets were, along with Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church, were the foundation of the church. In fact, I'm going to be teaching on this tonight, only I'm going to wait till next week to really get into depth on this. 
um, that the foundation of church, the Greek is that has already been laid, and the church is being built in the continuous present tense. So when Jesus lays a foundation, First Corinthians three eleven says, "Be careful of the foundation you lay. No foundation we laid except for that which is already laid, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation." Anonymous, we always view this as Jesus standing in the corner of a foundation that's already been laid. To his right, he's got the apostles. To his left hand, he's got the the New Testament prophets. And he says to the church, this is the foundation now for everything that we're going to build. So church, the foundation's laid. Now you're going to be built upon that strong foundation. And so, Anonymous, if you claim to be a prophet, you have to be perfect in every prophecy. You can't be one of these guys that's just for general, there's something going on in your life, the Lord told me this or the Lord said this. You've got to be perfect. You can't have even one error in your prophecies. And I'm certain that's not the case because there are no prophets. The office of prophet is closed. Now, there is the gift of prophecy, but that's just the telling forth of God's Word. I exercise the gift of prophecy every time I open a Bible and teach it because I know the Lord is using me to speak to other people's lives and and, and deal with the things that they're dealing with in their heart. That's just the gift of prophecy. Sometimes God will give us a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. That doesn't make you a prophet any more than having the gift of prophecy makes you a prophet. So, um, disagree all you want. You are not a prophet because that would contradict what the Bible says. The prophets are subject to the spirit of prophecy, meaning you can't be in contradiction to the Word. And um, I can promise you don't know others who are. Because there aren't any more. So you got to deal with what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning, I think it's verse 20. Um, let the Lord speak to you. That's why we're to be workmen, rightly dividing the Word of God. And please, 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 be really slow to speak in other people's lives I would never want to say something like, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord told me to tell you this because you're misrepresenting the God who loves them so deeply. So, sorry, you're not a prophet. 340-9585, phone's quiet as we close the week today. Um, we got somebody on the phone? Hold on. Okay, we got Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for breaking up my voice. You've got the, the, the floor. Well, thanks for taking my call, and uh, happy anniversary a little late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, well. Oh, well, well. Don't have one, get one, huh? Yeah. Not these days. <laughs> but at any rate, I don't know where this thought came from, but it's a puzzlement to me. In the Garden of Eden, as they were naked and all the animals were eating uh, vegetation, they weren't eating each other, correct? I believe you said that. Yep, that's right. Okay. Um, it, 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 
I puzzled about the the thing about the Bible saying the lion and the lamb will be lying down together. And uh, uh, when when do you suppose that uh, all these creatures that Noah had on his ark <laughs> uh, to save? I mean. Ha- how would we ever know before we get to uh, heaven uh, when, which, you know, if the lion was there with the lamb and the garden, or if lion man-eaters came after the fall, or I, I don't know what it, what it all means, but you do. So I'll <laughs> listen on the air. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate the call. There's a simple answer for that. The the prophecy of the lion and the lamb lying together is from Isaiah. You read the last chapters of Isaiah, and it's a, a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. So when Jesus returns to the earth, this is after Revelation chapter 19, and he establishes his kingdom, he's going to reverse the curse. And then once again, the, the little boy, it says, will play with the asp. Uh, the lion will lay with the lamb, and and it's just Jesus reversing the curse. Things will be back. Now, the earth won't be as it was at, at Eden, but it will be as close to it as it can be for the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And there will be no problem. Um, uh, the lion that would devour the lamb no longer will. Because God is going to change everything. So that's at the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth at the end of time. So in the beginning, um, um, there, was, there, there was no meat-eaters. Um, that all changed with the introduction of sin. Um, but we will return again to that time when the animals will exist together in harmony and it'll be a, a, be a, a, a reversed curse earth. So, Ray, that's what that means. Good question. See, if you don't get your chronology right, then there's all kinds of things that are difficult to understand. Lucy says, I was recently called out by a woman who said I had no right to tell people God loves them because I can't know if God chose them. Is that true? And how can I share Jesus if it is? Lucy, you've run into a Calvinist. And Calvinists are really... um, I don't need to say that. I was going to be pejorative. Um, Calvinists are wrong. (laughs) Let me say that. Um, They believe that God chooses arbitrarily. Uh, To one, he says, I choose you. To another, he says, I don't. Uh, That's simply not true. Um, you can tell them God loves them because the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. You can tell them God loves them because God wants all men to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be judged or perish. Um, and the Calvinist is simply telling you the wrong thing. You know, a lot of Calvinists, now this isn't true of every Calvinist, but a lot of Calvinists uh, don't evangelize for this very reason. But, Lucy, as as the Holy Spirit is sort of leading you here, um, giving you discernment, um, you know there's something wrong with not being able to tell somebody God loves them. When the Bible says God is love, God loves everybody. He's unwilling that any should perish. And so that's the key to evangelism. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. 
and you share the gospel with them. But uh, this woman was out of place. Um, doctrinally, she's wrong. Um, and you need to stand up for yourself a little bit. Don't, don't force a confrontation, but just tell her, look, the Bible says God loves the world. I'm going to tell the world that God loves them. And the rest of it is between uh, her and her conscience. Calvinism is a dangerous thing, not heretical, but it sure is a joy stealer. When you can't share Jesus with people, man, that's tough. Here's a question from Edward. He says, I want to know, Ezekiel 38 and 39, is that before or after the rapture? Edward, people have been arguing about that for a very, very long time. I'll tell you what I personally believe. Um, uh, For me, the issue is fairly clear. Um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are events that happen after the rapture of the church. We're not going to see any of the events. We're not going to know who the Antichrist is. We're going to be taken out of here. And then all of these things are going to come along. So I believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is after the rapture. Having said that, there are people that I admire, uh, friends of mine, in fact, um, within our Calvary Chapel group of churches, who who would take the other position and say that it's going to happen um, before the, or the, the rapture of the church. Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, just for something to think about, Edward, um, I think the place to look, um, if, if you want to know we're getting close to the rapture in terms of the world scene, is look at, at Turkey and Syria, and we see things really getting scary in Turkey and Syria, and we're getting close to that. Then the rapture of the church is is near. Um, but the other nations that are going to be gathered in Ezekiel 38 and 39, I think that happens after the rapture of the church and we won't be here. Thank you for the question. Here is a question with James, from, or from James, rather. He says, I really struggle with Paul's teaching on slaves. I just don't get why he didn't demand their freedom. I know he wasn't a racist, but it seems unjust. Um, James, in the, in the ancient world, slavery had nothing to do with race. Slavery was an economic issue in the Roman Empire when Paul was writing. Slaves outnumbered free men four to one. That's how the Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. And so Paul, as he would go out in these Gentile areas declaring Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, he, he, obviously this would be a message. It would be so attractive to slaves. Paul would be talking about freedom. And the minute they'd hear the word, their ears would perk up and, and they'd wonder, well, what's this message of freedom that's being proclaimed? And slaves got saved over and over and over. You know, if you read, especially in the book of Romans, Paul's goodbyes at the end of the chapters, he greets a lot of people. Some of those were slaves. Secundus, Tertius, and Quartus. Those names mean second, third, and fourth. In the Roman world, most slaves didn't even merit a name. But these were slaves who got saved and became useful in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does say to them, if you can be freed, then do it. But he also understood the world at that time. And slaves had no rights. They couldn't be granted their freedom. Legally, their owners could do anything they wanted. But remember, this wasn't black and white. 
This was economic. People would sell themselves into slavery because of debts. Others would be born into slavery. Uh, others would find themselves in slavery and, and they would love their, their, their masters and want to stay there. They'd become then what's known as bond slaves, slaves by choice. But there was no way for them just to get out and leave. In fact, in the, the little precious book of Philemon, one of my favorites to teach, uh, Onesimus, one of the central characters, is a runaway slave who one day heard the Apostle Paul teaching. He was in Rome. He heard Paul proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he got saved. And the Spirit of God fell upon him and he became so useful, so helpful, profitable. His name, uh, it, it's a play on the word profitable. And he, he one day was convicted by the Holy Spirit that he was guilty of stealing because he ran away from his owner. And he told the Apostle Paul, he said, i got to go back to Colossae. And Paul said, well, I know people in Colossae. He said, well, i got to go back because my story is that I'm a runaway slave and the Holy Spirit is convicting me. And Paul would have said, well, because I know people there, maybe I can write you a letter, kind of help you out. What was your slave owner's name? And he would say his name was Philemon. And Paul would get this huge smile on his face. He would think, Philemon, my Philemon? And then he would tell Onesimus that, that just like you heard my message and gave your life to Jesus, the same thing was true when I was in Colossae and Philemon gave his life to Jesus. Now he's the pastor of a church. And Paul wrote this letter to Philemon the greatest example of spiritual arm twisting in literature, I think. And of course, that was just God's way of telling Onesimus, look, you go do what I told you to do and and things will go well with you. So that's the, the issue with slavery. If you can be free, be free. But he also knew that wasn't realistic and that would cause people to, to be judged, to be killed. And God said through Paul, well, how about just be the best slave you can? Stay in the circumstances you are and treat your masters with respect and work hard. Do all things as unto the Lord because it's the Lord you are serving rather than your slave master. And he was teaching him how to be a light in the middle of darkness. So James has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with the United States of America. It was just the world that they lived in. And one of the great things about our Bible is it meets us where we are doesn't pretend things ought to be different. It meets us where we are and tells us how to be light in the middle of all this darkness. So James, I hope that puts the question to rest. No more struggling. Well, we are done for the week. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Go to church this week. Don't stay home. Go to church. Worship God. Serve the people of God. And watch what God will do in your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.